Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to the Garage Gym PT Podcast. Uh, sitting with you, as always, is Lou and Dave. Yep, happy to be back. Now, this is episode, I, I was a little pumped with this. This is episode number 10, which I honestly didn't realize it was number 10 already. <laughs> kind of crazy. Uh, but we hope you guys enjoyed last week's talk on squat mechanics. We can dive more in depth on that if you guys want. Uh, but today, Dave and I are going to discuss deadlifting mechanics, uh, maybe some setup, some faults, and maybe even a little corrections here. Um, but in all honesty, I mean, I feel like there was a lot of discussion on like like cheating in the deadlift like over the last year with like conventional versus sumo. And let's just squash that right now. Like yeah, it's not yeah, cheating. Just pick something up off the ground. Yeah, it's not this, cheating. This goes back to that seamer length discussion too. People just have better levers based upon their natural anatomical disposition. So I prefer conventional because of my femur length. Some people who have a higher squat are going to have a propensity to do more sumo lifts because they want to, in essence, leg press the bar off the ground. Yeah, that's me. And there's and there's definite like pluses and minuses to both. So do them both. Yeah. I think uh let's let's kind of go into the the anatomical person, Dave. Um kind of like you did last time with the squat. Who's going to have more of a, let's say for a conventional um, or either one, actually, what, what anatomy is going to be more advantageous for the deadlift? I, I think the conventional is easiest to talk about first. Mm -hmm. uh, when you're looking at somebody who's going to be in favor of the conventional deadlift, they're typically more of that five, 10 and above frame, um, longer femurs and longer arms. So this will create a internal lever that's much better for pulling off of the ground. And it also shortens the range of motion to the hip by having a longer arm. So yeah. this, this is the person that's going to have much more of a propensity to get into their glutes, low back and hamstrings. And this is going to be your default point again, right? So this goes to the same person who's probably low barring is likely doing this. Obviously, that's not a, a fixed archetype, but mm -hmm. majority of the time, this is going to be the preference of these types of people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why, you know, watching from a setup angle, um, like as the coach can be great for the person who you're working with. And then you can kind of find maybe what was like, for example, I've always pulled conventional uh, until I started getting made fun of by Brandon and Alex, and then I switched to sumo for a little bit. And then next thing you know, my deadlift started going up like crazy. Um, just, I guess that's just the way I'm, I have more of an advantage, which I had always just thought conventional all the way, but now I actually will alternate between the two now, especially when I start hitting sticking points. And there's, there's definitely reasons to do both. All right. So like, uh, whenever you're trying to bias a little bit more of like your your whole leg mass, meaning like your quads, sumo is probably where you want to go. The other thing that sumo forces you to do is work on your depth. So getting mm -hmm. your, your legs out into a super wide stance and almost like squatting into the setup transfers very well to a, a box squat. 
or depth within a squat as well. And it really works on your adductor strength mm -hmm. by forcing you to like get out of the ground and hit hip extension in that position. Yeah, no, I agree. Whereas in the opposite side of that, the conventional is going to bias more of those hamstrings and more of the, you know, the spinal erectors and glutes. Um, yeah. I would say upper back strength is probably the thing that you're going to get there that you may or may not get from your, from your sumo pull. Cause your, your idea in the sumo pull is to kind of keep your trunk as upright as possible and then keep the chest rise on par with the bar. Uh, assuming you have the mobility. Whereas in the conventional, you're going to get stuck in forward flexion. So there's going to be a moment to pull your scapula, your thoracic spine, and your low back out of position. So mm -hmm. this is where the spinal rectors and posture and scapula play a lot more of a role. Mm -hmm. Actually, you bring up a great point, Dave. So spinal flexion, is it the devil? Uh, in short, no. <laughs> Thank you. So I think your hip rise is the devil. It's not spinal flexion. Mm -hmm. So typically yeah. people that they have the, the, what we call like stripper fault in the squat. Mm -hmm. If you're, if your hips rise too early, then you're going to put your spine in a compromising position by nature of your hips, not spinal flexion. I agree. Uh, I mean, some of the like top power lifters ever. I think Eddie Cohen might be the best example of this. Like he would lift with a rounded back. Yeah. And like they're pulling yeah. 800 to a thousand pounds off the ground. Pretty hard to argue that spinal flexion is a thing that's dangerous there. Yeah. I also think it, that uh, coordinating your, your lift as well kind of goes hand in hand with that early hip rise. I think sometimes people are really bad at taking like slack out of the bar. That's the one um, cue that what I would probably give for that bingo yep i think if you can kind of learn how to like almost feel like that click i mean i guess it depends on the bar you're using but like sometimes you'll feel like when you take that tension out of the bar you'll feel like that click and then you know you kind of put an adequate tension through it and then you can kind of continue to initiate your pull um metal that's usually are a lot more appreciable for this too bingo yeah let's see here though so rounded spine flexion um I know sometimes what I'll look for in the deadlift with people is like you already, you already just said like your upper back tension, right? What do you do with your shoulder blades and what are you doing with like your lat engagement? Um, but sometimes before I even go into that, I'll actually look at where the bar is resting over their foot. Um, sometimes it's, they, they round too much just because the bar is too far away from them. And they're so far down in this squat when they're trying to do like the deadlift that the bar is so far away that when they go to pull, they're like one of those little fishing rods as soon as they go to pull from the floor. Um, yeah. And let, let's, let's see if they just go by like rule of thumb here. I mean, guys, mm -hmm. the, the goal is to keep the bar as close to you as possible. Okay. So if you're already starting and the bar is kind of away from your shins towards your midfoot or even like over your toes, you're already putting yourself in a hard setup. Mm -hmm. So the further the bar gets away from you, this is where your injury risk goes up. Mm -hmm. The looser you get with your lats and the less that you pull the bar in towards yourself, more chance there is for injury. Yeah. Trying to have as straight of a bar path as possible from floor to finish at lockout. Um, 
And if your bar looks like it's doing this little curve or S pattern, um, you're just working against yourself. Yeah. And I would even say that this can happen when you're trying to do conventional, if you're trying to do a squat form. So if you are messing up a clean pull with a conventional deadlift because you're afraid to hurt your back, you are already compromising your spine for weight. Mm -hmm. Right. So the reason would be is you're probably starting too low and you're biasing your quads rather than taking the slack out of your hamstrings. So then you go from a less rigid posture and it pulls you forward. Mm -hmm. So like going over your setup specifically for a conventional, the mm -hmm. bar should be very close to your shin. You should tension the lats, meaning pull the thing into you and almost like drive your shoulders down towards your pockets. And then the last thing you want to do is you want your, your butt to be relatively high to where you can actually feel the tension in your hamstrings. If you don't have this, you're going to shoot up because you're pressing the bar, not pulling it. Mm -hmm. And then you should almost feel like you're pulling the bar in like a diagonal path back towards your hips, not straight up. So basically you're trying to approximate that bar towards your hip, not just lift it off the ground. As soon as you said pocket, the first thing I thought of was Tom Segura. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Your mom's house have us on. <laughs> Uh, that's the best cue ever now. I'm never going to forget that. Right. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so Dave, when you're working with someone who's complaining about like lower back pain uh, with the deadlift, what are some of the most common, like, I guess, startup issues that you've seen with like, I won't, I won't, let's just say general public. It's hard because I feel like it's just a smattering. I mean, if even their stance, it's not under them. Mm -hmm. So they're basically just bleeding biomechanical efficiency. Like, so they don't have their their feet under their hips, assuming they're doing conventional. Mm -hmm. Like you spoke, the bar is actually getting too far away. They're usually starting too low in the setup. And they don't really have a good idea as to where to direct their head and neck. Mm -hmm. so that they're they're kind of pulling towards i don't know but let, let i think we can kind of even break this down and go into that yeah let's do it so your head and neck position really matters if you are looking too far straight down you're going to have a rounding effect if you're looking mm -hmm. too far off from the distance you're going to have a pushing effect so usually there's kind of this spot let's say it's five to ten feet away it might be like the base of the wall where your head is kind of flexed at 45 degrees that doesn't compromise your upper back trap and neck so that it prevents you from straining inflection and straining and extension and it really helps you just kind of finish the deadlift with very good spinal alignment so some of the secondary stuff that happens at the top of the deadlift is for whatever reason, people would be pulling, you know, relatively heavy weight 
and they'll rotate their neck to see who's looking at them and then come up with a trap strain. Like, <laughs> why are you turning your head? Exactly. Like you should almost like finish this thing in like a chin tuck position where your, your anatomy is entirely stacked. Mm-hmm. It shouldn't be compromised forward, backward, rotation, side bend. You're, you're just taking a maximum contraction and overstretching it if you're doing this with your head and neck. Yeah. So then let, let, that kind of leads into my, my next question. Um, what type of, of accessory movements or modifications to the deadlift have you used um, to either add to the movement or to modify for pain? Yeah. Uh, the, the biggest thing for my deadlift is I'm trying to get time under tension of the spinal erectors because inherently you're trying to pull a deadlift as quickly as possible, mm -hmm. which, which really doesn't leave much room for hypertrophy unless you're doing RDLs or touch and goes. Yeah. So, uh, general injury faults typically lead towards an avoidance of leaning forward. So one of, like, one of my favorite questions to ask people is like, if I stuck you on a hinge or leaned you forward and had you just sit there for a minute, would this make you fearful? Usually the answer is yes. That's a to good me, question. This, this has a high indication that you aren't using your, your lumbar, uh, thoracic and sacral multifidi, right? Yeah. What we know about this is these deep spinal rotators really help with eccentric flexion, which is mm -hmm. of course the thing that you're missing with the deadlift if you just get to the top and drop it. So <clears throat> what I'm trying to do is basically find any way that I can to get these people under tension of a forward trunk lean as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I'm trying to hit a ton of reverse hypers and making them strict and then have like a very slow eccentric. I find that that's pretty, pretty good for a start point. Um, it looks intimidating, but Guys, literally this exercise was developed because Louis Simmons broke his back in a meet. And it was the simplest thing that he could do to strengthen his back. Yep. Therefore, it likely makes it the most logical place for you to start as far as spinal strengthening. Yeah. Uh, so that'd be one, that. one piece. Mm -hmm. I love uh, tempo banded good mornings because of the accommodating resistance you can actually get a pause in the bottom and accept the position better bingo um another piece to consider here is something like a goblet or a front squat <clears throat> um there's been a few people that have run an experiment where they've done nothing but front squatted for a year two years try to get as heavy as possible and their deadlift has actually gone up without touching it because of the upper back strength and forward trunk lean that you have to avoid. So yeah, those are kind of three pieces that I'm really trying to get is something that's going to pull your body forward and you have to resist the spinal flexion. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of like what I'm trying to get my people to do. Yeah. Obviously the variation of the type of back pain 
<clears throat> like your if you have a QL mm -hmm. strain, it's pretty obvious. I'm probably gonna have you do a ton of like suitcase carries to bias the QL that's strained with side bends, mm -hmm. um, as well as you know your other accessory work. But that's usually what it looks like for me within like the acute phase. Yeah. So um, do you ever add in any kind of like unilateral work? I know like sometimes I'll like if I have the patient who like they'll shift in the deadlift, sometimes side to side with the hips. I like checking hip mobility a little bit. I mean, more my older, not my younger. My younger, younger athletes usually have pretty good hip mobility. Usually more my older patients who I'll have to look at like hip internal rotation. And then sometimes I'll kind of bias like with like a stagger stance deadlift um, and just kind of see if we can load that side on pain, pain free or if there's a little bit of discomfort. Um, but sometimes I'll, I actually love the three that you already listed because I do the same thing. Um, but then I'll also add in like that unilateral work to that side, um, depending. Yeah, I'm actually not a big fan of uh, single leg RDLs because the user error is so high. <clears throat> but what I'll do for the unilateral stuff, mm -hmm. nine times out of 10 is some variation of a split squat with a pause in the bottom or a single leg glute bridge. So I think that yep. shift pattern is is a lack of glute and quad activation out of the initiation. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it really has to do with like your spinal erectors. It's that initial push through the ground where you get a shift towards your dominant side. So I feel like you're not getting a symmetrical rise because of that, not necessarily a uh, pulling fault. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because rarely are you pulling things out of the ground with, you know, your feet not under you. <laughs> yeah. Unstable. Uh, yeah. Um, what, would, uh, what would be like your go-to for someone who's like, I guess, how do I put it? Um, they have like, like on initiation of pull are gravitating away from the weak leg, like ACL. Um, I still like sticking people just in the bottom and making them pause. So mm -hmm. I've also done some stuff with like J hooks where like I'll get them to like slot down as they get closer to the end of rehab. Mm -hmm. So you start obviously from like a comfortable high, you take the barbell, you stick it under the J hooks. And then what you're doing is like three sets of three for like a five to 10 second build where you're trying to basically pull the bar up into the J hooks as strong as you can. Mm -hmm. So then you like make note of the J hook level and then drop it from week to week to get them in a more vulnerable position mm -hmm. to really help them work their way through that process. But I still think like, as far as like the ACL patient, it's getting them comfortable in the bottom position in something where they can't get away from it. Let's see, I, I love that like cue of the split squat. I've even had them do like staggered stance wall sits. Um, mm -hmm. To me, that's, that just says that we're not spending enough time in the range of motion that they're not comfortable. And once go. again, I would, I would still even attribute that to a quad fault, not a, not a hamstring or a glute fault because they're probably not pushing through the leg. They're pulling through it. Makes a lot of sense, especially post-op ACL. Um, so with someone who has, let's say, 
they're, they're, they're new to the deadlift. Um, and no matter what you do, like they can't sink their butt into that position to get like the back extended. Are you going to harp on them on having a straight back from the get-go? Are you going to allow a little bit of rounding? Let's say brand new, brand new athlete, brand new deadlifter. Um, I think it's best to start with good cues and then find out what they're best at. Mm -hmm. But we obviously know like the straight back deadlifting is not a end-all be-all. Mm -hmm. So they may have a preference of spinal flexion where they feel more stable and stronger. But I think mm -hmm. it's best to try to start that, right? Um, just by nature of cueing and building a good movement pattern. Um, I'm also kind of of the belief that you just kind of like let people go through things for a while and kind of figure out a, a neurological process. And then from there, you have something to cue on. So if you're brand new, I just want the semblance of the pattern. And then from mm -hmm. there, we'll, we'll tweak one thing at a time. So I want you to kind of go through some growing pains. And then I think like your, your accessory work probably matters more at that point than the actual movement. Yeah, I agree. Like the 80-20 rule. Yeah, and they, they may not even have the, the muscle mass to do this, right? <clears throat> so they may not have the bolstered lower back. They may not have good upper back positioning because their spinal erectors are super weak, in which case just doing a deadlift is going to help this. But what you pick after that really matters almost more. Mm -hmm. I'll say think... it, it does matter more. <laughs> I was going to say, uh, I think one of the things you could preface is that like the back, the back, if your back is not strong, it's your ability to load both the squat and the deadlift is going to be limited. So like, why wouldn't you want to put your back through its paces to like, I feel like we almost demonized back strengthening for the longest yeah. time where it was like neutral spine, neutral spine, neutral spine, the spine shouldn't move, the spine shouldn't move. And it's like, like, that's the exact opposite of what we would want. We want the spine to move. We want it to be strong. We want it to be resilient because then that applies to the lips. And it's, and just... it's, it's sports specific, right? So if you're a power lifter, you want more rigidity. If you are a golfer, you need more you know, rotational mobility. Thank you. And I mean, how many times in school did we hear that where it's like neutral spine? I mean, I, I, I still remember this, this day, like it was ingrained in us in one of our ortho classes where it was like fine neutral. And we were just doing like leg lifts. Right. And they're like, Oh, you moved. And it's like, yeah, my back moved. Is that really yeah. that like horrible? Because I'm moving. <laughs> yeah. Was, I just remember sitting there and thinking, I'm like, like I get the thought process of like like quote unquote neutral, but like finding it's fine, but then strengthening yeah. is another thing. And I always remember it was the weakest person in the class picking on the strongest person in the class, thinking that it was like a fault. And it's yeah. like, no, I have way more resiliency than you. Let's just go pick up the plinth and move it someplace, and I can do it any way I want in any position, and you can't get out of neutral. Yeah, you round, you'll be at more exposure to weakness and chance for injury than what I would be. Not if you have a weak back. Just, oh man, sorry, soapbox over. I just remembered like that, that was just like harked on so much. No, 
I'll just say it, guys, it's a good thing to feel things in your lower back because your back is a muscle. And literally, especially in the powerlifting space, you are only as strong as your low back and glutes. Bingo. So if you don't feel these things, they act in conjunction. I don't care about the firing sequence. I don't care anything about that. Just lift something and feel it. Mm -hmm. Half the time, you just have to learn how to do things. Then we can talk about sequencing the way you feel it and how to get it better. But if you don't have a reference to move within, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't necessarily like throwing people into things like Jefferson curls or any of that stuff for the most part. Um, it's just my own pet peeve. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't necessarily think that you should be just trying to maximize spinal flexion and extension for the hell of it. Because at the baseline of your spinal structure, you're supposed to provide a brace for things to move on, not move the thing that braces your CNS. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, so there's the healthy medium here where I do think you have mm -hmm. to have some prequisite range of motion to be athletic, but problems really occur in the extremes of anything. Yeah. Like we prefaced last time with the butt wink, you get to those extremes, those outliers, I think you called it right. Yeah. Just deviations away from the curve. Right. So as long as you're within yep. that, I think it's like 68% medium range you can still be pretty stable and pretty flexible but the second mm -hmm. you get too rigid something else is going to give the second that you go over to the hypermobility side you know stuff like spinal fusions happen um possibly like a uh, propensity to shoot a disc may happen yeah. um speaking of which guys if you if you go get a spinal mri and you're 25 on you're probably positive for a a disc herniation and disc degeneration. So your MRI does not equal your symptoms mm, and you bingo. should not, and you should not avoid the deadlift because of it. Mm -hmm. So take your MRI and crumple <laughs> it up because nine times out of 10, it does not tell why you have pain. Bingo. I mean, you, that, that's like, like as a physical therapist, we, we treat the symptoms, not the image. Um, and that's why it's a big component of, don't be wrong, don't, don't dismiss the MRI. Because I mean, sometimes there are patients who will want you to see that. And like, if you're still trying to build that rapport with them, do your due diligence, read through the MRI, but then have the conversation with your patient or your client and talk to them about, you know, the importance of, you know, what they're reporting to you and how you're going to treat them, not based off the image though. Sure. Let's talk about the time that this does matter versus when it doesn't. Yeah. An acute spondylolisthesis really matters. <laughs> so it's an acute spinal fracture really matters, but a chronic disc herniation or disc degeneration does not. This is just mm -hmm. age-related change. Bingo. How many people walk into a clinic, I have degenerative disc disease, and I look at them and I go, hey, so do I. Yeah, I'm like, well, congratulations, you're 35 years old. It's just a symbol of living. Yeah. It's, it's, I wish they would like change the name for that because degenerative disc disease just sounds so horrible. But in reality, it's the natural process of aging. I wish it was just spinal wear and tear. Yeah. Thank you. You, you, you lived your life. Cool. 
Like, but it's not a disease. No. So I think they need a change. You didn't catch it. Exactly. It's not the cold. Yep. You didn't just catch a disease in your spine. Not communicable. No. I think that's a big miscommunication in the medical field right now. Because then they have like in their brain that I I I something going on in my back. I shouldn't do anything with my back. My back is so fragile. It's like you have this bit if if this was fragile, you would not be able to do half the things we do every single day. And guys, the the reason that this person has had back pain for 10 years is because they stopped using it. Okay. So this image diagnostic model happened um forwards, not backwards, meaning like they went in, they got imaged, and then somebody said, never do a deadlift again because of your image. And it's got progressively weaker, and then the pain kept spiraling forward. Rather than no image, treatment, continued strength, and then no pain. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think this is kind of like a nice segue, maybe for the next episode, Dave. Um, I mean, we're, we're running out of time here. So I think what we'll do next time is let's talk more on like, like core bracing and like maybe setups for like the brace and like how maybe we could progress people through that or maybe what progressions we've used. Um, cause I don't think we're going to have enough time here right now, but we can go into that next time. That'll be a good episode. Sure. Um, but we hope you guys learned a lot today from, you know, the, the, the deadlift mechanics and the different um you know topics that dave and i talked about today uh but we will see you guys in the next episode